You may open your Bibles to John chapter 9. The words that you just sang, a wonderful Savior is Jesus my Lord, written by a woman. All of our women were singing, speaking and teaching and admonishing us, and that's allowed in New Testament worship, and I hope that your hearts were in it. A woman wrote those words, a woman wrote many other words, that woman, Fanny Crosby, blind from birth or at six weeks of age when it was identified. She lived to be 95. In that first verse, she wrote that when she was hid in the cleft of the rock, rivers of pleasure I see. Do you see rivers of pleasure this morning? Or are you bored and wishing that you could go home? Wishing that the sermon was over, not just beginning. Rivers of pleasure I see. That blind woman appearing before a number of presidents, before joint sessions of Congress, because of her poetic ability and because she was a spokesperson for the blind in this country during her life. She also wrote in that fourth verse that when she gets to heaven, her Redeemer is so wonderful. A wonderful Redeemer. I'll sing with the millions on high. No, I'll shout with the millions on high. That's the kind of woman that you should love and appreciate and esteem. She wants to shout the praise of her Redeemer. And I hope that every woman here has a heart that loves the Redeemer and that he's a wonderful Redeemer and that she wants to shout with the millions on high. The zeal for the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll give an account to him when we meet him as to how much zeal we had for him. Brother Bryant from Psalm 37, that fourth verse. Delight thyself also in the Lord. Verse 3 said, trust him. That's elementary, infant faith, to trust him. That next verse is to delight in him. It says delight also in the Lord. In addition to faith, it's to delight in him. Do you delight in him this morning? Is he the joy of your heart? Do you see rivers of pleasure? Do you want to shout with the millions on high? Are you exhilarated by the word of God and the words of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the way he dealt with the man born blind? Don't just hear my words. Don't just endure my words. Embrace the words of John 9 and all that we just sang and that we're going to read in this chapter. Dost thou believe on the Son of God? Lord, who is he that I might believe? Amen. Well, you've seen him and he's speaking to you. I believe. And he worshipped him. Let us do more than believe. Let us worship him. And to delight in him. Okay, John chapter 9, 41 verses, has seven scenes. And we've been through three of those scenes. The first scene is the healing in verses 1 through 7. Then we have the neighbors questioning the man born blind in verses 8 through 12. Then the Pharisees take their shot at him in verses 13 through 17. The exchange between the Jews and the man born blind is certainly entertaining. It's one of the delightful passages in the Bible. But we should also identify the difference in the character of the parents to their son. Because there's a significant difference. We should also identify the willful ignorance 
of the Pharisees, and they operate just like religious heretics do today. And we want to see some of those character traits of theirs. We should realize that our Lord's words from verse 35 to 41, the last two scenes of the seven at the end of this chapter, are the most important. And so let's not get too carried away with the excitement of the man born blind holding his ground and punishing those Pharisees for examining him. He does an outstanding job by the grace of God and the logic of faith and the evidence that was at hand, but let's make sure that we get the lesson at the end and that we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only do we believe, but we worship and that we want to shout with the millions on high and not just be bare believers because there's going to be a whole lot of bare believers that are sent to hell. John's taught us that. This gospel, more than any other, has exposed false believers. And we don't want to be them. We want to be true believers. And we want to be worshipful believers. Lord, help us. Let me read to you scene number 4, verses 18 through 23, which is the Pharisees questioning the man's parents. John 9, 18. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son, who ye say was born blind? How then doth he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But by what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age, ask him. He shall speak for himself. These words spake his parents, because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already, that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, said his parents, he is of age, Ask him. This is the word of God, John chapter 9, verses 18 through 23. It is scene number four. The Pharisees questioning the man born blind's parents. Verse 18. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. After these Jews had made up their mind against Jesus, and they had made up their minds against Jesus a long time ago, they need to get rid of the evidence. And so they try to get rid of the evidence through a series of examinations of the man, of his parents, then of the man again. They had already presumed that Jesus was not from God because he had violated their little sacred cow, their golden calf, called the Sabbath. And they had already said that in verse 16, this man is not of God. They had made up their minds. They had made their judgment already. They weren't interested in a fact-finding case. They simply wanted to get rid of the evidence and get rid of this man. One of the best ways to get rid of evidence against a lie or heresy is to get rid of the man. And so for 1,500 years, our ancestors in the faith were put to death. One way to get rid of the truth is to get rid of men believing it. 
One way to get rid of the truth is to get rid of men preaching it. And so they're going to try to get rid of this man one way or another through their examination. Since the man had been brought to them with the evidence of a miracle, they had to act. They were under the spotlight now because this man had been brought to them. Remember, the neighbors and acquaintances in verses 13, in verses 8 through 12 that had found the man, they brought him in verse 13 to the Pharisees. They did not call the parents as they're going to in these verses to confirm the miracle to believe on the Lord. Don't read verse 13 that way, or verse 18 that way. They're not going to interview the parents in order to believe. They're going to interview the parents as another effort to try to get rid of the evidence before them that a miracle's been done by one, Jesus of Nazareth. They hoped either by intimidation or cross-examination to discount the deed. Look at this verse, but, but, it starts out with but. When you present the truth, most do little more than say, but, 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 but what about this? But what about that? But what about this? But what about that? Instead of humbling themselves to the word that's been presented to them. Instead of, in this case, humbling themselves to the example, the evidence, the proof that a miracle had been performed. They already had a multitude of eyewitnesses that knew the man had been born blind and that he now saw, and they had the man's own testimony. They had already established it by the evidence that Moses required in the mouth of two or three witnesses. Without faith, they could not disregard their little difficulties like Abraham could. We want to be like Abraham. If God says something, we believe it, and that settles it. And we don't consider all the difficulties or the problems that there might be in our minds to accomplish such a great thing. I don't have to think or worry about how the sun stood still for a day for the sake of Joshua to finish a battle. I don't care that the moon stood still at the same time. If the sun's standing still and the moon's standing still, that sounds like a, a very interesting day to fight a long battle. Amen. I, I just believe it. Right. I don't need to worry about how did it happen. Abraham didn't worry about how it happened that he was reproductively revived in many different ways in order to impregnate Sarah, his wife, who was reproductively dead, and she to bring forth a son named Isaac. And the Bible tells us that strong faith doesn't do that. We don't need to know how. We just need to know what did the Bible say? What did you just read to me from the Bible? I believe it. Lord, help us to have faith like that. But most don't want to believe the truth, as John chapter 8 told us. In verse 45, Jesus told the Jews and explained about them, Because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. If you were to tell a lie, men will believe it. Evolution's a lie, men believe it. That's right. Global warming's a lie, men believe it. Yep. Transgendering perverts are a lie, men believe it. They'll believe anything if it's a lie. There's so many futuristic lies based on Bible prophecy in the world today, But because if you'll preach a lie, they'll believe it. The old-fashioned truth that was believed about prophecy for 1,800 years, you present that, nobody cares, because it's truth. Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. He was everything. He was the promised Messiah. They had a dated prophecy, a dated prophecy pointing right to the years that they were now in, that this was their Messiah. But they didn't want to believe him. 
because of the depraved nature of our hearts, when God is present before us in the person of His Son, there's a resentment against Him. But let us not have any of that. Let us put down our old man and put on the new man and worship the Son of God that is here in this passage. You will meet people that simply and stupidly say, well, I don't believe that. Well, that's nice. What is your evidence? I just gave you scripture for the truth. Well, I just don't believe that. We don't care what you believe. Answer the truth. This man is on trial. He's already explained. And they're going to repeat their question. Now they're asking his parents. They've already heard from a multitude of witnesses and from him that he had been born blind and that Jesus had healed him and how Jesus had healed him. He's given the account twice already, verse 11 and verse 15. Now they want to interview the parents. The blindness of man, your inherited blindness, spiritual blindness, is very great against all truth. Unless God changes heart, mind, eyes, ears, we will not believe the truth. But thanks be to God, he has opened our eyes and ears. If these Pharisees had been half as open to believe as to disbelieve, the case was settled in front of them. A miracle had taken place. But they couldn't allow that if they could avoid it. Until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. Rather than believe eyewitnesses and the man himself, they wanted more proof. They will not believe the miracle and fall at Jesus' feet by parental testimony. They're just using this as their next ploy to dilute and distract and divert from the miracle that's in front of them. They called his parents to counter or dilute the neighbors and his testimony. This was not some unbiased effort to verify facts, to come to a valid conclusion. They will declare their conclusion again in just a couple verses. And they've already declared it once. This man, they said in verse 16, is not of God. And this man being Jesus Christ. Verse 19, And they asked them, saying, Is this your son, who ye say was born blind? How then doth he now see? They had three questions for the parents. First, they asked if the seeing man was truly their son. Then they asked the parents, was he born blind? Then they asked the parents, how was he born blind? And by whom? Because it's implied in the answer of the parents that that's what they asked. Is this your son? Was he born blind? How was he healed? By whom? There's four questions in total, third and fourth being, how did this happen? Their efforts to intimidate the parents worked, as the following context shows us by the parents' response. Notice the sarcastic slight by suggesting that the man had not been truly blind. Is this your son, who ye say was born blind? They had more than the parents. They had the man admitting that he'd been born blind. They had the man's neighbors that had grown up knowing that he had been born blind and couldn't ride his bicycle because he'd go on the road. He'd been born blind. They already had the evidence. But they're playing games. And men will play games when they don't want to deal with the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And their efforts worked. They intimidated the parents as the context shows us. 
Note the question, how? How then doth he now see? Which they had heard by direct report twice already. They had heard that a man named Jesus made clay, put it in my eyes, sent me to the pool of Siloam and told me to wash. And when I washed, I came back seeing. I, ha I got my sight that way. That's how it happened. Verse 11, verse 15. But now they want to keep on asking how. If we were to ask how God's going to do something and just keep on asking it, we'll never obey God or get his blessing. Right, right. The blessing of God is upon those who believe the promises of God. Abraham believed God. He staggered not in unbelief at the promises of God, but was fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. That's right. God makes promises. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. You don't need to ask how or why. Just believe God's promise and do your part. You had presented to you from Psalm 37, verses 3, 4, and 5. Trust and do good, and you'll be fed. Well, how is trusting God and doing good going to feed me? Don't ask that question. That is a question of unbelief. Just trust God and do good. Delight in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Well, how is delighting in God going to bless me on the job? Don't ask that question. That's a question of unbelief, and your pay grade doesn't go nearly high enough for the answer. Just believe and delight in him. Amen. Delight in him. Who cares if there's a second half to that verse? Just delight in him anyway. Because delighting in the Lord is the most fulfilling thing that you can do with your life. And if he wants to tack on a blessing to it, praise his glorious name. But we shouldn't even need it. But don't ask how. Commit thy way unto the Lord, and he'll establish it. How's he going to do? Don't ask how. Fret not thyself because of evil men. They're going to be cut down. How? Don't ask how. Just don't fret yourself and know that their day is coming. Oh, Lord, give us the faith of Abraham. Abraham did laugh. But then Abraham got his act together about faith and trusted God that he would have a son named Isaac by his wife, Sarah. Sarah did laugh. But then she received faith to conceive seed. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us, the Lord is so merciful that even when we doubt, even when we ask how once in a while, or even when we question, or when we might even laugh at a promise coming to pass in our lives, he overlooks it. If we get our act together, repent and believe. If the Bible says that a woman should submit to her husband and reverence him, and that that's going to make a great marriage, don't ask how, don't ask why, don't ask any questions like that, just do it. It's God's word. It's his promise. It's the only way it will work. There is no other way to have a marriage and have it work. Lord bless us yeah, with the faith that we ought to have. The question of how has already been answered in verses 11 and 15. But the miraculous to unbelievers is either a fraud or by the power of the devil because they can't admit a miracle. The quantity, that means how many. The quality, that means the kind of miracles and the extent of Jesus' miracles were out of this world. From storms, calming storms, with verbal commands, peace, be still. 
And a great storm becomes a great calm to the resurrection of the dead, to the feeding of the 5,000, to casting out devils. But they wanted to accuse Jesus of working by the power of Beelzebub. That is how depraved people are. This was the church of God. This was the church of the Old Testament. And these are the members of that church, and these are the pastors and leaders of that church in the, pl- in the form of the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, and lawyers, and high priests. And they're the ones saying these things. They couldn't admit a miracle of, by Jesus of Nazareth. And if they did admit a miracle, it was by the power of the devil. They would, they would attack it in any way that they could to discount the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was the prophesied Messiah. The antagonism of man against God, against his son, and against truth displays total depravity. Verse 20, his parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. We know those two things. He's our son and he was born blind. His parents were afraid. The context is going to tell us that in these verses here in scene number four. They were afraid, and so they're only answering what they could without getting in trouble. Yes, we know he was born blind. This should be enough. They now had three categories of witnesses that he was born blind and was now seeing. But there's another question to discredit Jesus performing the miracle. There's the issue of how it was done and by whom. These, these people, look, at you're at John 9. If you flip over to two chapters, to John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and he's been dead for four days. John chapter 11, look at how they reason. They will reason in every way that they can. It's not a miracle. It's one way they reason. Other times, it's nothing more than what our gypsies do. Other times, he's doing these things with the power of the devil. Other times... We can't, let, we can't give in to this miracle. If we give in to this miracle, we'll lose our jobs. We'll lose our place. Look at John chapter 11. This is the raising of Lazarus. Then gathered the chief priests, verse 47 of John chapter 11, then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council. Oh yeah, church councils. If we all get together, does that raise the level of intelligence or lower it? It always lowers it. Then you've got the common denominator of a council. And the common denominator of a group of men is always lower than a bright man. Lord, give me a bright man. Oh, I did, son. I gave you the man born blind. Because he is a bright man in John chapter 9. He sees when they couldn't see. But back to John eleven forty-seven, 47. They gathered a council and said, What do we? What are we going to do? For this man doeth many miracles. This lowly man from Galilee... This Jesus of Nazareth is doing a lot of miracles. He just raised the dead. If we let him thus alone, if we let these miracles stand, and if we leave him alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. That place being the temple where they worked and had their livelihood. They'll take it away. This is how men reason against the truth. That's why the Bible warns that ministers before they're ordained ought to have a good report of them that are without and have already established themselves as being able to work and make a living. So many boys that enter the priesthood of the Roman Catholic Church or enter the ministry of other denominational groups have never worked a day in their lives to support themselves and so they're dependent on their ministries. 
And if they're dependent on their ministries, then they are more reluctant to preach the truth because it could reduce the giving in that church. This has always been a problem. Men that are ordained should have already established their ability to make money. Then, first of all, you have an evidence that they have qualifications necessary to be a pastor. Second, they're not going to be afraid if men give or don't give because they know they can go back in the world and make a living. Right. Look at these men. They'll take away our place. They'll take away our nation if we don't stop them. And so the effort here is through the parents. Can we get this thing stopped? Verse 20, his parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. He answered those questions. They answered those questions for them. Verse 21, but this other question that you've asked, we're not going to answer. But by what means he now seeth, we know not. We don't know how it was done and we don't know by whom it was done. We don't really know that. Or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age, ask him. He shall speak for himself. Now they knew he'd all, they'd already asked him, but they do not want to answer because the Bible tells us, and we thank God, the Holy Spirit, for giving us the explanation for this deferred answer on their part. They're afraid. Verse 22 tells us, These words spake his parents because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already, that is, the leadership of the Jews, the religious rulers, that if any man did confess that he, that is, Jesus of Nazareth from Galilee, was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. They're going to get excluded from the church. If they were to admit or even line up on the side of Jesus being the Messiah, being the Christ. Christ is the New Testament word for the Old Testament word Messiah. The anointed and prophesied one of God, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, Shiloh, the seed of the son of David, the prophesied one that was coming. Amen. Back to verse 21. By what means he now seeth, we know not. The parents first pled ignorance of the means by which his blindness was cured. And then, or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. We don't know that Jesus did it. We don't know. They fudged because they were afraid. They didn't say these words because they were the truth. They said these words because they were afraid. Oh, let us, including our children, never be afraid. We had in the year 2015, a brother with the help of his wife and family present every Sunday to us the stories of specific martyrs. Every Sunday for the year 2015, we heard about martyrs that when put on trial, if they would have just told a little lie and humbled themselves to the popes of Rome, they wouldn't have been burned to death, drowned, pulled apart, fed to wild dogs, and killed in other various ways. But they told the truth. And they blessed and worshipped the Lord Jesus Christ. And they would not bow down to the popes of Rome. They would not acknowledge Mary as the mother of God. They would not acknowledge that in the mass of the Catholic Church there was any transformation of substance of that little sun god wafer that they put on their tongues. They wouldn't do it. These people caved. Jesus has met with lots of these. Look at John chapter 12. 
John chapter 12, verse 42. Fear, the fear of man bringeth a snare. Let us never be afraid of men. There is someone you should be afraid of. And it's the other side of that equation. It's God himself. John chapter 12, verse 42. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also, many believed on him. John 12, 42. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. The very same situation as the parents. Verse 43, and it explains why. For they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Do you like having friends? Do you really worry about all your family? That they're all going to think that you're sane and sober? Are you worried about people and what they think about you? To the degree you worry about people and what they think about you, you are going to compromise the religion of God. Because people don't love God. They hate God. People do not love the commandments of God. They hate the commandments of God. And so if you try to make peace with everyone and live in such a way, well, I just don't want to rock the boat. We're all going to agree to disagree. They will not agree to disagree when it comes to the truth of God's word. Our nation and Canada to our north and Europe and the efforts to legislate crime, uh, hate crimes are primarily against us. Hate crimes are primarily against those that are Bible Christians who will bring Bible statements and religious morality against the trends and fads of a society. You're not going to be able to get along with everyone. We're going to be persecuted one way or another. Now, we thank God that we live in a peaceful generation in which we can preach, we can live, we can practice our religion without the fear of civil reprisal. But you're going to get personal attacks and personal questions. They're going to think that we're nuts. You took the steeple off your church. You don't have musical instruments. You don't have flags. You don't let women speak in your assemblies. We're crazy. You know, even though we line up with all the churches 150 years ago, uh, all Baptist churches 150 years ago look just like us today. They're the ones that have changed. We haven't changed. We're still practicing the faith of our fathers. Lord, don't let us be afraid of men. So they defer to the man born blind. He can speak for himself. He's old enough. Respected manhood among the Jews was 30. Thus John's ministry and Jesus' ministry started at 30. Human experience teaches us that 30 is a whole lot more mature than 18. A young man at 18 thinks he knows everything. Then he gets to be 30 and he knows he knew knew nothing at 18. And he knows barely more at 30. It's amazing how smart parents get as a child grows from 18 to 30. It's precious. And 13 by far. You know, teenagers, well, well, I'll not say that today. We had one pass from teenagehood yesterday to the age of 20. Sitting over here on your left side, Joshua is now 20 years old. No longer a teenager. The man born blind, he's of age. He's old enough. He's experienced. He's sober. He's 30. He can speak for himself. And so they defer. And verse 22 tells us why. Because they were afraid. I showed you in John 12 that others were afraid, that wanted to believe on him, that thought they believed on him, but they were afraid to confess him because they would be excluded out of their church. 
The fear of man brings a snare. Consider how Peter failed when Jesus gave him over to Satan and the strength of Christ in him was taken away and a little maid girl questioned him about being a companion of Jesus Christ and he denied it three times with cursing and oaths. Consider how Peter failed another time. Galatians chapter 2. Peter has traveled 300 miles north of Jerusalem to be in Antioch of Syria at Paul's home church. And he's there eating with Gentiles. Peter knew. If there was anyone that knew, if there was any apostle that knew that they could eat a pepperoni pizza, it was Peter. Because Peter sat on a rooftop when he was hungry and a sheet was let down with all sorts of animals in it, including the source of pepperoni. Peter was told, arise and eat. Slay and eat, Peter. Peter knew. And so Peter was eating pizza with Gentiles. You know, I'm just giving you an illustration and a metaphor for unclean food with Paul and the Gentiles in Antioch of Syria. But when some other Jews came up, the Jews that he had to pastor down there in Jerusalem, when they came up from Jerusalem to join them, Peter all of a sudden wouldn't eat with the Gentiles. And Paul had to rebuke him to his face. And he did it out of fear. And the Bible tells us he was afraid of his companions from Jerusalem. Don't ever be afraid. Let's stand on God's word against anyone or everyone. Noah had to stand against the whole world. We don't even know if his seven family members agreed with him. They may have agreed with him when they saw the first drop. All we're told is that by faith, Noah. It doesn't say by faith, Mrs. Noah. And it doesn't say by faith, Shem, Ham, or Japheth. And it doesn't say by faith, Mrs. Shem, Ham, or Japheth. Are you willing to stand alone? The whole nation, the whole church, the whole church stood up in a rage and tried to kill Moses, Caleb, and Joshua. Who was right? Moses, Caleb, and Joshua. Who made it to the land of promise? Caleb and Joshua. And none of that generation. Just like we read in Psalm 37. The wicked are cut off. The Lord sees that their day is coming. And he told them how long that day would be. You're going to wander in circles for 40 years while I get rid of you. Oh, let's not be afraid. When Jesus Christ is with us, there's no reason to be afraid. He has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Therefore, there's no reason for us to be afraid. Because the Lord is our helper. What can man do unto us? That's Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. How many martyrs went went to the stake believing those two verses? That Jesus wouldn't leave them nor forsake them. Think about Pilate and his fear. He was going to deliver Jesus. He was going to let Jesus go. Until they said, if you let Jesus go, then you're not a friend of Caesar. Oh, oh, for political expedience. Then, to protect his job, he put Jesus to death. Let's never be afraid, brethren. Jesus said, fear not them which kill the body. All they can do is kill your body. You say, well, that sounds pretty drastic. It does sound drastic. Fear not them which kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. All they can do is kill your body. But I will forewarn you whom you shall fear. 
Fear him, which after he hath killed your body, hath power to cast both body and soul into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. That's the advice of the Lord Jesus Christ to his apostles in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. Stony ground hearers are those that cannot bear persecution. They have just a little bit of soil because they're on stony ground. There's just a little bit of soil. They spring up, then the sun beats on them, and because they don't have a deep root system, they wither away and don't bear fruit. And that is to describe that sun shining on them is other people picking on their newfound faith. And so they give it up easily and quickly. If you're persecuted for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ and his name, do you know what Luke records for us that you ought to do? Leap for joy. Right. Leap for joy. I would do it right now, but I don't want you to measure my vertical jump. It's not what it used to be. Well, it's better than it was a year ago. Amen. Leap for joy is what the Bible says. The apostles, when they had the privilege in Acts chapter 5 of being beaten for the name of Jesus Christ, they left that assembly where they were beaten to return back to their, the believers rejoicing that they had been given an opportunity to suffer for the cause of Christ. Right. Lord, help us to have that kind of an attitude. Yeah. Where are you afraid? When are you afraid? How are you afraid? With whom are you afraid? For what are you afraid? Why are you afraid? To love the Lord Jesus Christ and his doctrine. The Jews had already agreed through their leadership that anyone that said that Jesus was the Christ was to be excluded from synagogue and temple worship. Elihu wasn't afraid of the four wisest men on earth in Job 32. He's the one that spoke the truth in the book of Job. David wasn't afraid of his teachers, the ancients, or his enemies in Psalm 119. Three Hebrew men were not afraid of the fiery furnace. And that fiery furnace was one intimidating prospect. But they told King Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful. Meaning, we are not anxious nor afraid. That word careful in our King James Bibles means to be anxious or worried or afraid. We are not worried or anxious about this matter. We don't know if our God's going to deliver us or not from your fiery furnace, but we do know this. We're not going to bow down and worship your image. That's beautiful. That's why it's in the Bible. That's why it's in children's storybooks. We want to teach our children that kind of courage. The synagogue. They were going to be put out of the synagogue. The synagogue was places of worship set apart from temple worship after the Babylonian captivity because the Babylonians had leveled the temple. So there wasn't a temple to worship in, so they set aside buildings called synagogues for that worship. They existed long before John the Baptist, but we have a 400-year gap in the Bible between Malachi and Matthew, and so we don't read about them in the Old Testament by the name synagogue because the little bit that we read in the Bible about the Jews that came back from Babylon were rebuilding the temple. But... They got into synagogue worship while they were in Babylon, so they had in locations like Capernaum and like Nazareth, 70, 80 miles away from Jerusalem, places where worship could take place that didn't have an altar, didn't have the priesthood slaying animals like they did in Jerusalem. That's the synagogue. They're going to be kicked out of Jewish worship. You know, the book of Hebrews was written to encourage Christian Jews that had been cast out not to go back. It was hard for a Jew. They knew that God, Jehovah, was the monotheistic God of Israel. They knew that the priests were God's priests. They knew that they had the word of God. 
They knew that it was the altar of God. They knew it was where he dwelt on earth in that holy of holies. For a Jew to give all that up and follow Jesus of Nazareth, who had been killed and had now disappeared, and the apostles that were eyewitnesses saying he rose from the dead, that was hard for them. And so Paul wrote the book of Hebrews to convince those believing Jews, those Hebrews that had become baptized believers, not to go back because that Jesus was superior to everything they had under that old covenant. Amen. Every single thing they had, Jesus was better. Verse 23, Therefore said his parents, He is of age, ask him. And so the Holy Spirit tells us why the parents deferred because they were afraid. And so we come to scene 5, verses 24 through 34. John 9, 24. Then again... They're going to ask him. He was of age. The parents wouldn't say anymore. They'll interview him again and try to cross-examine him. They're the ones in trouble this time. Verse 24. Then again called they the man that was blind and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that... Whereas I was blind, now I see. Beautiful. Then said they to him again, What did he to thee? How opened he thine eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and ye did not hear. Wherefore would ye hear it again? Will ye also be his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spake unto Moses, as for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. The man answered and said unto them, Why, herein is a marvelous thing, that ye know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened mine eyes. Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. They answered and said unto him, Thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. Beautiful. The man born blind. Oh, this is exactly how it'll happen when you try to tell false teachers that they're wrong. This is how it happens. This is how they get all puffed up. This is when you try to tell your medical doctor that you have a different idea and that you have a few questions for him because their godlike person their godlike personalities and godlike bearing doesn't allow questions from you. After all, who art thou to teach them? And it doesn't matter whether it's medical doctors or theological doctors whether it's doctors of medicine or doctors of theology. But here we go in scene number five. Then again called they the man that was blind. The parents wouldn't help them, so they call him back. Give God the praise. They swear him in court. Give God the praise. These are the words that Joshua extracted from Achan. Give God the praise and the glory and confess now what you did. This is, this is a serious matter. It's not them just pretending they're having a praise and worship service. Right. Give God the praise. 
You humble yourself before God right now. You're in the presence of God. This man's a sinner, meaning Jesus of Nazareth. You admit what we're swearing you to admit, that Jesus of Nazareth is a sinner. Give God the praise. Hear this, the pious and deceptive junk out of their mouths. Words mean nothing. You know, our leaders despise Bible Christianity, but they love to say at the end of speeches, and they love to say back there in September of 2001, God bless America. Those words shouldn't come out of their mouths. They have no right to say those words. They have no right for the God of the Bible to be in their mouths. They hate the God of the Bible and Bible morality. Oh, they may have religion. They may go to our national cathedral on an occasion to attend some sort of a religious service, but they don't believe Bible Christianity. And what are they talking about? God bless America. How can God bless a nation full of those that hate him? How can God bless a nation full of schools mandated by those very men not to allow Bibles in, not to allow prayer to occur? God bless America. God blesses the righteous, but there's no repentance or righteousness in the nation from their standpoint, from their viewpoint. We know that this nation has been preserved thus far for the sake of a few righteous souls in it, like Sodom and Gomorrah could have been preserved a while if there had been righteous souls there. Even ten, the Lord would have spared the place. Isaiah had condemned the Jews of his day for just such public lies. If you can turn or listen to Isaiah 48 and verse 1. Isaiah 48, 1. Hear ye this, O house of Jacob, which are called by the name of Israel, and are come forth out of the waters of Judah, which swear by the name of the Lord, and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth, nor in righteousness. That's why I said what I just said about our nation, and I'm applying it to these men as well in John chapter 9. They'll swear, and they'll mention the God of Israel, but they don't do it in truth, and they don't do it in righteousness. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 14, Jesus condemned these Pharisees for this very kind of work. Matthew 23, 14, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! It's got an exclamation point. How do you want me to read it? Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. Because you pretend religion to get at widows' assets, you're going to receive the greater damnation. And here they are. Give God the praise. They didn't want to praise God. They didn't care about God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't care about all the evidence that was there. They didn't care that there was divine evidence that God was with Jesus of Nazareth by all his miracles and by John the Baptist's testimony. Let me read that verse one more time. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses. That means they get widows to give their money to the church so that they can have it. And for a pretense, make long prayer. Therefore, ye shall receive the greater damnation. What do you think that verse reads in the NIV? We don't know. They don't have a 14th verse in that chapter. What about the ESV? We don't know because they don't have Matthew 23, 14. What about the Holman Christian Bible of the Southern Baptist? We, we don't know. They don't have a Matthew 23, 14. 
Now, can you help me figure out what men would not want Matthew 23, 14 in the Bible? Would they have any motive to get rid of Matthew 23, 14, since it's telling them that they're going to receive the greater damnation for selling the Bibles that they do with copyrights on them and for a hundred other things that they do? Amen. Give God the praise. They use this phrase much as an oath of their certainty and his duty to God, just like Joshua had done with Achan. It's the voice of swearing that obligates those in court. We do, we do something very similar. Left hand on the Bible. Right hand, so help me God. Give God the praise. So help me God. Give God the praise. So help me God. Jesus of Nazareth is a sinner. That's this verse that we're reading. Matthew, uh, John 9, verse 24. We know that this man is a sinner, and they're referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. The sin they attach to Jesus is a big one, to seventh-day heretics of all kinds. The Jews, terrible hypocrites, used the Sabbath to condemn Jesus every time they could. Try to reason with the Seventh-day Adventists sometime. All they can think about is their Jewish Sabbath. They so adore this Sinai golden calf that they make it the mark of the beast. All of us today, by worshiping on Sunday, have taken the mark of the beast. Because we're worshiping on Sunday. Because they want to tell you from their efforts at revisionism that the Catholics changed the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. Listen, there wasn't a Catholic church for 300 years, and the apostles changed the day of worship from the Sabbath to the first day of the week right. in the book of Acts, in 1 Corinthians 16, in Colossians chapter 2. They so adore this Sinai golden calf of theirs, they make it the mark of the beast. I call it a Sinai golden calf because when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, there was a golden calf. When was the first time that anyone on earth had ever heard about a Sabbath day? When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, 2,500 years after creation. And if you're worried about Genesis chapter 2, remember that Moses wrote Genesis chapter 2 after he came down from Mount Sinai and had heard about the Sabbath. And so this is the sin that they're trying to get him to agree to. Verse 25, the man born blind responds by saying, whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. He responded to the opening condemnation of Jesus by deferring such a charge. He rebuked them for their charge of sinfulness without dealing with the miracle. I don't know if he's a sinner or not. That isn't the point. You've got a miracle in front of you and you've got to deal with it. One thing I know, I was blind and I was blind for 30 plus years, but now I see. And he did it to me. Amen. And you've got witnesses of it. Amen. I don't know whether he's a sinner or not. All I know is that there was the power of God in him to do something good for me that hadn't been done for 30 years. Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. He defies them in court and them calling God to witness that Jesus was a sinner. I don't know that he's a sinner. I can't agree to that. And he's going to explain why. In just a moment, you already know where he's going. Yes. I can't agree with that. All I can tell you is I know one thing for sure, and this court ought to be dealing with facts, and the fact is I was blind, but now I see. Right. Oh, I like him. Right. And you know, those, those events that were read to us by our brother Stephen back there in 2015, how many Sundays did we want to punch the air at some of the fantastically beautiful things that were said by martyrs that were uneducated at times, but when they were, the Lord gave them words to say. Amen. And they would not humble themselves 
to the Roman Catholic Church or any other persecuting power of Europe. Verse 26, Then said they to him again, What did he to thee? How opened he thine eyes? Here they go back to the same question they've been asking over and over again. They got the report of eyewitnesses. They got his report. They asked his parents. Now they're asking him again. And he's getting a little impatient with their questions. How opened he thine eyes? Quit asking how. The wicked so much want a natural explanation for things since they hate God. The wicked of this world hate God, so they always want a natural explanation. There's only two options, a divine miracle or a natural explanation for it. We got to hear and read so much drivel and twaddle about the flood. The flood was just some local flood. Israel crossing the Red Sea. Well, there's a part of the Red Sea where there's a sandbar that stretches across it. The long day of Joshua and countless other fabrications that the world comes up with because they always have to have a natural explanation for everything when it was a supernatural demonstration, the power of God for his people Israel. Verse 27, he answered them, I've told you already, and ye did not hear. It didn't convince you then of a miracle. Wherefore would you hear it again? Will ye also be his disciples? Isn't that beautiful? The man's courage is growing. The Lord's with him. You want to hear it again? Love his boldness. He challenged them and mocked them for asking about it again. They should have considered the miracle instead of asking again for the details of how the miracle took place. He said, you've ignored my answer already given twice because you cannot admit it. Are you going to be his disciples? Is that why you want to dig into this closer? There's a miracle. Why are you asking how? Do you want to be his disciples? Beautiful. Thank you, Lord, for courage like this. Like the martyr examples that went before. This man knew Jesus had disciples and followers, but he was truly mocking his captors here. Verse 28, then they reviled him and said, thou art his disciple. Thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. They were not used to being treated like this, so they respond as most teachers do. Note their sarcastic mockery, how how they respond to his sarcastic mockery of their questions. They cannot take being questioned or answered by those they think inferior. And if you ever try someone that's had a year of Greek or a semester of Hebrew or someone that's gone to seminary, they're going to mock you, revile you, and ridicule you. It's the way they have to operate. Who do you think you are? That doesn't matter. What are you going to do with the Bible verses I just gave you? That doesn't matter to them. See, it doesn't matter to us when they say, who do you think you are? It doesn't matter to us that they went to seminary. It doesn't matter to them that we gave them Bible because all that matters is their denominational agenda, just like it was with the Pharisees. Verse 28, then they reviled him and said, thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. They were right that he leaned toward being his disciple, but they mocked him for it. Their purpose was to revile and mock him in comparison to their orthodoxy. Our enemies and opponents will mock us for not following, for following the Bible over men. We're Moses' disciples. They had appealed to Abraham in chapter 8. Now they're appealing to Moses. Pitiful. Limiting themselves to Bible authority is good, but Moses wrote about Jesus. 
They were not truly interested in Bible authority, but rather in reviling men. Moses had directly prophesied of Jesus as a special prophet that was going to come, like me. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, we've been over that passage before. Moses had recorded other prophecies of Jesus coming as early as the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 and the seed of the woman. Moses' disciples, this is exactly what we rightly accuse SDAs of, Seventh-day Adventists, of being Moses' disciples instead of Christ's disciples. I write them every week and tell them this. You're trying to follow Moses and pretend that you're a Jew. We're followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles as Gentiles. And I tell them, when, when you are ready to become a Christian, let us know, we'll baptize you and you can be a Christian. Because it's impossible to be a Sabbatarian and be a Christian. They're contradictory to each other. Verse 29, we know that God spake unto Moses, as for this fellow, look at their disrespect to the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that God spake unto Moses, as for this fellow, referring to Jesus, we know not from whence he is. We know God spake to Moses. What great wisdom. What great wisdom. Like the devils believing on Jesus Christ and trembling. The devils believe and tremble. James chapter 2 and verse 19. Does that require mutual exclusivity? That if they believe that God spoke to Moses, he couldn't speak to Jesus of Nazareth? What does that have to do with the price of tea in China? We don't care that God spoke to Moses right now. The issue is, did God speak to Jesus of Nazareth who had just performed a miracle that exhibited divine power in healing a man born blind? You can present a hundred arguments of God's particular love and they'll say, but God is love. You present a hundred different Bible verses showing God's particular love for his people and they'll come back with, but God is love. What does that have to do with anything? That's what I'm trying to tell you, that God is love and has a particular love for his particular people that he chose in Christ before the foundation of the world. So what are you trying to say? We're Moses' disciples. God spake to Moses. Why couldn't he speak to Jesus? Who cares if he spoke to Moses? Did he speak to Jesus is the real issue in this court. As for this fellow, we know not whence he is. Listen to their disrespect. As for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. They knew he was Jesus of Nazareth, but they had looked no further. Being raised in Nazareth of Galilee, set their profane minds against him, but they did no further research. They had a time prophecy from Daniel chapter 9. They had clear prophecies of John the Baptist, who had identified Jesus as the one to come after him. His miracles were unprecedented in magnitude and quantity and quality. They didn't care. They'd already made up their minds. Verse 30, the man answered and said unto them, Why, herein is a marvelous thing, that ye know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened mine eyes. You are the religious leaders of this nation and this church, and you don't know where this man came from, but he just did a miracle that he could only have done by the power of God because it was good in its nature, and he has done nothing to exhibit himself as a sinner. God must be in the matter, but you don't know anything about him? You don't know where he came from? This is a marvelous thing. What precious wisdom we have in this court today. Verse 31. Now we know. Now he's going to explain some things to them. You don't know 
but I know, and really, you know, because these things are axioms found in the Bible. He is going to appeal to some axioms, some basic rules of the Bible and theology about God and how God relates to men. Now we know he's putting some pressure on them. They put some pressure on him and it didn't work. Give God the praise. This man's a sinner. Well, I don't know if he's a sinner or not. I just know that he did a miracle. Okay, now he's going to put some pressure on them. Now we know. When you can get someone and use the plural pronoun, we all understand this from the Bible. Then you put pressure. He's putting pressure in reverse order here in this hearing. Now we know that God heareth not sinners. You're saying he's a sinner? Now we know that God heareth not sinners. But if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. That is an axiom of Scripture. That is Psalm 34, Psalm 68, Proverbs chapter 15. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the righteous is pleasant to him. And on and on it goes. That was common knowledge from the Old Testament. He's appealing to Scripture. The Lord Jesus Christ is operating by his Spirit through this man. This man is answering as Jesus did when he was in the wilderness, being tempted by the devil. As it is written, as it is written, now we know. On what basis do we know? By the multiplied testimony of Scripture. Now we know that God heareth not sinners. But if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole world to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are perfect with him. Second right. Chronicles 16 and verse 9. Beautiful reasoning. But he pulled them into it. Now we know. This is common knowledge of everyone. He's going ha- he's to he's force them to resort to other tactics or to admit that the Bible isn't true. That they don't agree with something that everyone that was listening to this exchange would agree with. Because they all knew this. That the wicked weren't heard by God. That's why Israel prided itself on being Israelites because God heard them because they were his people and didn't hear the other nations of the earth. Verse 32. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? It would require the divine power of God. It would require God being with this man. It would require God answering this man. It would require God blessing this man, Jesus, in order for him to do the miracle that was done. And we know that God doesn't hear sinners. He only hears the righteous and those that worship him and do his will. Oh, if this man were not of God, if Jesus were not of God, he could do nothing. He wouldn't be able to perform this miracle. He wouldn't have been able to perform all the other miracles he's done and that you've heard about and know about. A miracle doing good like Jesus had done was proof of God's divine favor with him. Gamaliel used similar reasoning in Acts chapter 5. Brethren, slow down. Slow down on what you want to do about these apostles that are preaching about Jesus Christ. If this thing be of man, it's going to come to nothing. But if it be of God, let's not fight against God. And so... The blind man here, who's now seeing, is giving them an opportunity to be as wise as Gamaliel. But they didn't quite go for it. And they cast him out anyway, and those men back there didn't fully listen to Gamaliel, but beat them for preaching in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. Look at the reasoning. He pulled them into it. He pulled, he appealed to scripture and the axioms of scripture that God only hears the righteous. God only hears the worshipers of him. God only hears those that obey him and keep his will. God doesn't hear the wicked. God doesn't hear sinners. This man is not a sinner. God is obviously with him. You won't admit it. Since the world began, there's evidence that you've never heard of before, never seen before. If this man weren't of God, he absolutely has to be of God. If he weren't of God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. They answered and said unto him, Thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? Yes, amen. He was teaching them, and they cast him out. Thou wast altogether born in sins. They go back and undo what Jesus Christ has taught us about this man. Right. He was born in sins. The reason he was blind is because he was a sinner and his sins were still upon him and he was guilty because of those sins. Oh, look what men will do. You say, it's hard to imagine men that wicked. You mean friends of Job? Is that who you're thinking of? The friends of Job? Remember when he said you're all miserable comforters? Mm -hmm. Those three men, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, three friends accused him of sin in his life and that's why those bad things had happened to him and that was not the case and this is not the case that he was born in sins and his blindness was evidence of his sin because this blindness was for the glory of god as we learn in verses two and three yes Amen. it gave our savior an opportunity to show us something wonderful and show him something wonderful and the best part of the chapter is yet to come the fact that he no longer needed his cane or his seeing eye dog is good. But the fact that he is going to be introduced to the Lord Jesus Christ Amen. face to face is better. Amen. And the Lord has come to us and revealed himself to us. Do you believe on him today? Amen. Thou wast altogether born in sins and dost thou teach us? They mock him by their esteemed position in the church as being its teachers. They give no consideration to his arguments, but condemn him for his person. It's an ad hominem argument. Ad hominem, an argument against the man instead of against the point. They pick on him. Who do you think you are? Do you think you can teach us? Do you think you have any light that we don't already have? You haven't even been educated. We've been to seminary. Why do you think you're trying to teach us? You're nothing. You couldn't have the truth. That's ad hominem. That's Latin for argument against the man. So you pick on the man, you pick on the person instead of dealing with his argument. His argument is impregnable. His argument is, we all know that God only hears those that worship him and will keep his will. God doesn't hear sinners. This is a miracle that proves the power of God. Therefore, this man isn't a sinner. God's with him. And if you'd have asked him right then, who is Jesus of Nazareth to you? He probably would have answered the way he did earlier. He's a prophet, but he's going to change his mind real soon. Right. When the Lord Jesus comes to him, dost thou teach us? I want all of our young men to be like Elihu. Yeah. Amen. Elihu sat at that campfire with four of the wisest men on earth. He listened to them for 31 chapters, and then his rage boiled over. Yes, he was very angry at Job and his three friends. The three friends for wrongly accusing Job, Job for justifying himself before God instead of justifying God. 
And so Job 32, you young men at men's meetings, you've been taught about Elihu before. I want all of you to grow up to be like Elihu. Right, right down to very young. Noah, I want you to be like Elihu. I know your name Noah. You can be like Noah too. But I want you to be like Elihu. James, every one of you young men, be like Elihu. Roger, you can be like Elihu. You're not afraid. You're going to obey God. And you're going to believe his Bible. And you're going to say it no matter what. Let's be like David. In Psalm 119, David said he wasn't worried about his enemies. He wasn't worried about the ancients, the church fathers. Make them whatever you wish. He wasn't worried about his teachers because he had the word of God and he meditated in those precepts. This man appealed to the word of God just like Jesus did, just like Elihu did, just like David did. And this man did a great job. We know these axioms and based on these axioms, Jesus is not a sinner. Jesus is from God because he did a miracle that required divine power and they cast him out. If you take a stand in the word of God in most churches today, you will eventually be thrown out. If you keep bringing up things to the pastor, to the board of deacons, the board of trustees, whoever's in charge of a church, a denomination, you keep bringing things up from the Bible, eventually you're going to be cast out because they don't really want to follow the Bible. They really want to follow their denominational system. Get rid of the man and you get rid of his arguments without answering them. If you take a stand for Jesus Christ, you'll be persecuted for it. Look at chapter 15 and with it we close. John 15. Look at this warning of Jesus. We're not to it yet, but we'll get to it. John 15, verse 18. If the world hate you, John 15, 18, if the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. Then that puts us in good company. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you. This is something we should remember. The apostles were to remember it. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Because I'm the Lord and you're my servants. If they've persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. And that is the truth. Do we know him that sent him? Do we know the God that sent the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we willing to stand on his word? We're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ find this man for the second time when we come back after our break. Jesus is going to find and search out this man and open his sight in another dimension. And that is to know that he was the Son of God. And there's going to be worship, and Jesus is going to condemn the Pharisees with some warnings and exhortations for us to be believers ourselves and to worship him. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.